Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle Podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Corey. Can you hear me? Yes. Like well or like just a little bit? Okay, so let's try. You're good. Um, You're good. Good. Thank you. Hi, my name is Corey. I'm a compulsive overeater and a restrictor. Hey, Corey. Hello. Oh, my gosh. We were like in the wind down of like, let me introduce our speaker. My stomach, the butterflies in my stomach. Not my butterflies, but um, happy birthday um, and happy chip. Uh, really amazing. Um, uh, let's see. So um, I'm going to start with some numbers, and then I'll just do the what, you know what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. I came to OA in 1989. I got here through Al-Anon, where I came in 1988. Um, I always say that my first spiritual experience in OA was that I mentioned to someone in Al-Anon that I was struggling with my food. Um, because I didn't talk about my food with anybody. I, I had a belief that if I could convince you that I was okay, mm-hmm. that then somehow that would morph into me being okay. Because I really just believed that um, that I just needed to figure out. I mean, I'm, I'm not alone in this. You know, that's just step one. But the that I had to figure out how to not be the way I was with my food. And um, I knew what to eat. Um, I, uh, well, so let me, let me step back a little bit. Um, I was raised uh, in a family where food was a commodity. It was, um, it was love. It was, um, it was punishment. It was lots of things. And, um, but when I was little, I couldn't care less about food. I mean, I ate when I was hungry. I stopped when I was full. I um, Food just wasn't all that important to me. At the age of nine, I was diagnosed as a type 1 diabetic. And um, I won't go heavily into that because there's there's a lot about that and, and that stuff that contributed, I think, to my being a compulsive overeater. Um, but I say that also in part because there may be people on the podcast or maybe someone in the room that also has that. And I know when I was new, I was looking for other diabetics because trying to figure out abstinence and diabetic food plan and all that. But when, so when I was nine, I was diagnosed as a diabetic. Um, there, I was living in a very chaotic um, family with kind of extensive but very confusing abuse because it looked... We looked like we had a lot of love, but then there was also a lot of abuse that was happening, and a lot of it was verbal, and some of it was physical, and I witnessed more than I experienced, and that was confusing. And so when I was diagnosed as a diabetic at the age of nine, and all of a sudden, everybody was looking at my food, and I began to sneak my food because um, I started, like this switch got flipped for me. I know we've talked, we talked about that in this program. And, and the switch that got flipped was I was hungry all of the time. But it wasn't, 
it, it wasn't, I don't believe, a physical hunger when I look back on it. It was, there was a, you know, people talk about like a God-sized hole in my chest. And I have a friend who talks about eating um, to fill that hole, but it, the food always went, hey, the food always went to their stomach and trying to fill up this hole in my chest, it just never worked. So um, I feel like I'm, I'm, I feel like a clown at the circus where I'm like taking off all these glasses, but <laughs> sunglasses and reading glasses because I'm there now. Um, anyway, so I um, my first binge that I remember was um, I was diagnosed as a diabetic in August of uh, 1975. Um, I think I said I was nine, so if you're good at math, you can figure out how old I am. Um, and my first binge, my grandmother lived with us, and she was one of those people. I, I think most people in my family have some version of a disordered relationship with food. Um, I don't know if they're compulsive or eaters or restrictors or bulimics or whatever. It's not my job to diagnose them. But my grandmother was like one of the people that was kind of normal with food. And people would give her, I don't, am I allowed to mention foods? Yes. So people would give, she was like, they would give her these two-pound boxes of C's candy for Christmas every year. Um, and she was one of those people that was like, I can't have more than one. It's just too rich. <laughs> and, and I didn't... And that December, she got her two-pound box of chocolate. She lived with us. And um, the minute she unwrapped it, I was like a dog where you take a bite and the dog follows the food to your mouth. I watched where they put that box when it came off the coffee table, where in the kitchen the box was. That night I ate the whole top layer. Now, I'm a type 1 diabetic at that point. I was on insulin shots, so it's not like now I'm on a pump and I can just give myself some more insulin and, you know, I can cover whatever it is that I eat. So for me now, diabetes and compulsive overeating are separate. But... Back then, I ate the whole top layer, and then that little fake kind of bubble wrap, I pulled that off, and I just, I don't know, I maybe because I was too stoned on sugar, but I just didn't think that anyone would notice that, like, this whole top layer was missing. Um, but in the morning, I told on myself, and I told my mother that I uh, ate the whole top layer. Now, I didn't think that she was then going to hide the candy so I couldn't go back and eat the second layer the next night. I didn't even think about that. Um, but that's the kind of eating that I did at the age of nine, and I'm little, right? So for those of you on the podcast, I'm, I'm a little shy of four feet, ten inches tall, and I was even littler then, and um, that was, it was, I just didn't, I lost my sense of, like, what's full, and I just was hungry all the time, and that's the first binge that I remember. I'm not going to go through all of the binges that I remember because there'd be a lot, and we'd be here till Tuesday. But, um, but there were a lot of them, and I and I remember a, a, another one in particular, and then I want to move on. I remember having a love affair with McDonald's French fries, and I remember I was at my uncle's house, and we were all there, and someone ordered McDonald's, and I remember everyone went in the other room, and I started eating these French fries one after the next, and I felt like, and I, I mean, I was young, and I didn't yet know what, like, an orgasm was, but I felt like there was something weird about the way I had to have one after the next, and how there was grief when they were all over, you know, that's, that's where I come from with overeating, um, I did, as an adolescent, restricting came to town for me, the problem is I was on all this insulin, so I would stop eating and then pass out and then wind up in the emergency room, 
Um, so anyway, there's that's a part of my story, but I don't really know what to say about that other than that it's equally, you know, when I was overeating and I would see people who looked like they didn't have an issue with food, I was so resentful. And then when restricting happened for me, when it kind of came to town, um, I understood that it wasn't, that was no picnic on that side either. I think that's all, that's all I need to say about that. But, um, like I said, food in my family was complicated. Um, my mother, I grew up, she was always on diets, and Weight Watchers was a big thing for her. Um, and I, I, I'm grateful for that, only because I think I learned what a meal was by thinking back on what my mother, you know, she had all... Anyway, I, I think there's some, there's some good, and I know some people in here that use that as their food plan. Um, uh, and and the, when I was nine, the diabetic diet that I was on was kind of based on that. So it was based on, like, I was supposed to, not that I ever did, but I was supposed to have, I think if I remember, like, three fat exchanges for breakfast and two protein exchanges and two carb exchanges. And for lunch, I had to have a, a vegetable. And for dinner, I had to have a bee vegetable, which was meant that there was carbs in the vegetable. And, and at nine, that's a lot, right? And it's, so that's... I think that was part of why the, the switch was flipped. But I also think it was laying dormant in me. It makes sense coming from where I come from and knowing that addiction is genetic, whether it's nature or nurture. I don't. I no longer fight that one. You know, I cease fighting that one. Um, I just know that um, food was complicated. And um, what was I saying? Oh, so so my mother was on diets. My father, you know, was a compulsive overeater, and he felt horrible about his body. And I heard him talk about his body in a way that I believed about my body. Just he would call himself names and talk about feeling full and how is anyone ever going to love me if I eat this way? And um, and I try and fix it for him, which is why I go to Al-Anon, um, why I started out in Al-Anon. But um, all I know is I was feeding myself in a way that wasn't nourishing. It wasn't, I wasn't getting full but I was eating so much. When I was in grammar school, I would eat until there was, I, I don't think there could have been any more food that would fit in my stomach. Someone in um, in school, we had a change for PE and put on like one of those unitard things, those really, and someone said to me, you look like you're pregnant, because you know how kids can be so kind to each other. Um, anyway, so that's where I come from. Um, I didn't, when I, so I got to Al-Anon in 1988, like I said, my sister needed support going to a meeting, and I said, sure, I'll go to a meeting with you. I had no idea what it was, um, and I'm not going to talk a lot about that, but other than to say that was my gateway into OA, and I heard, this is a, um, I heard that if you come to AA through Al-Anon, it's called coming in through the back door. If you come to OA through Al-Anon, it's called coming in through the kitchen door. So <laughs> I came into OA through the kitchen door. Um, and as connected as I felt in Al-Anon, I felt home the first meeting I got to in OA. Because you all started talking about the ways that you use food and the things that you did and throwing something away and then thinking about it and going back and getting it out of the trash and eating some more. And I was like, wow, these people, like... I don't know, actors are cool, musicians are cool, that was cool. Like, that was that was cooler than any of that other stuff. And um, that you guys would say that out loud and not have shame about it. I had so much shame. I, um, 
And so for, for you all starting to, to hear you say all that stuff, it helped me have a little bit less shame. Um, or it began the process. Um, shame is a huge character defect of mine. It's how, it's, it's, um, I used to think it was a feeling. It was kind of my only feeling, shame and hunger. I don't think it's a feeling anymore. Um, I think it's a character defect or a character defense. And um, the good news is I have steps to work on that stuff. So um, I started working the steps right away when I got here. It was either that or like, I don't know, connect with people without a, a prop, right? And for me, the steps in the beginning were a prop. I asked someone to sponsor me. I was living in a very little town, someone who had been through the steps in AA. And um, I asked her, and she said yes, which I was kind of surprised about. But um, And we went to the beach. If you've heard me share, you've heard this story. But we went to the beach. I was living in Humboldt County, two meetings a week. No, there wasn't 30 and 30 like there is here. There were two meetings a week, and people didn't generally go to both. Um, and I felt kind of shameful when I went to both. <laughs> um, and uh, one time someone saw me and, at a second meeting and said, oh, wow, you, you must be having a rough week. And, <laughs> and I didn't realize that he must have also been at the first meeting if he knew that I was at the second meeting because it was I was ashamed, but it was also kind of still all about me. And um, my, so I, this woman, I asked her to sponsor me, and she had this book. I don't remember what book it was. It's not one that I can see on our literature table, but it was a book about the 12 steps. Maybe it was from another program. I'm not sure. We read the first three steps at the beach that day. Um, and then we went back to her apartment. And I was barely listening because I don't, it's not how I take in information anyway to like be terrified, learning something new, not have it in front of me. I mean, I read half of it. But we went back to her apartment and, and I said, so how do you know when you're done? Because I knew that there were 12. So I was about to be a quarter of the way through heading to my destination, right? It's, it's, by the way, it's not the road to happy destiny that we talk about here. It's the road of happy destiny. But I thought I wanted to get there, so I wanted to get through all 12. So I, um, I said, how do you know if you're done? And she said, well, you, you know, do you think your power is over food and um, that your life is unmanageable? And I looked at her square in the eye and said, absolutely. And I had no idea what that meant. Um, she was a somebody, knowing her, and now we're Facebook friends, we've reconnected, she was somebody that I could have said, I have no idea what that means. But I didn't, it wasn't even like, I can't tell her that I have no idea what that means. Um, it was sort of like, I just didn't have, I, I had no, I had so no idea what that meant that I didn't even know that I had no idea what that meant. I just was like, oh, yeah, okay, that sounds good to me. And then she said, you know, do you think possibly that there's maybe a power greater than yourself? I had no clue what that meant. I did not believe in God. I did not plan to believe in God. Um, just a parenthesis in here if you're on the podcast or in this room and you don't you don't need to believe in God just can't be you that's what I've learned um, and and I said absolutely <laughs> right um, and then she said you know can you think you're ready to make that decision to turn your will and, and that took me years to really make that decision but I said sure absolutely I'm so ready and then um, I said so now what do we do like I was like what's next and I want to get through and um and she said, well, we're going to hold hands and we're going to say this prayer. And we read the third step prayer. And it was so weird and intimate to me for me to be holding someone's hands in a room alone, just the two of us. It's not like, I mean, it would be would have been weird in a big meeting anyway, but <clears throat> and was for a while. But just the two of us to be reading this prayer. But So we did it. And, and I didn't, it took me a lot of years to realize that 
kind of really getting step one, at least in my experience, both parts of step one, the unmanageability and also the powerlessness, is kind of the graduate course for me. Some people come in and they're like, I was at step one, I got it, I knew I was powerless, my life was a hell, and I knew. For me, I wasn't at bottom. I came in because I mentioned to someone in Al Anon that I was struggling with my food, kind of, sort of, and she said, Why don't you come to an OA meeting? And I fought it for a bit and I wound up coming, but I wasn't at bottom yet. Um, which, by the way, I think it was a, um, I think my higher power works in very mysterious ways because I don't think I would have come at bottom. I think my shame, I mean, I don't know, I'll never know, but I, I think my shame was so big that um, if I had really been struggling, it would have been very hard for me to let you see that. But I, um, I started coming and I kept coming and then when I hit bottom, I was here and I had relationships and I leaned on people. Some people I leaned on a little heavier than others. Um, I got some people that took some steps away from me, which was very painful, but that's what they had to do for their recovery. And I learned a lot about like leaning versus, you know, sharing or versus whatever the, the differences are. Um, the one thing that I've done perfectly over all this time is just kept on coming back. Like that's, um, when I was new, I didn't, I, I don't, I didn't remember, and I don't remember that my sponsor explained kind of what the idea of abstinence was. And back then, we didn't have the tool of food plan yet. Like of all the tools that we read, um, I think there were eight at the time. Abstinence was where food plan is for us now. And and I don't know exactly the specifics, but I think at some point someone said, "But in AA, sobriety is not a tool. It's it's a thing, right? That's the thing." Um, and, and in OA, we should make abstinence the thing, and then let's find another way to reference food and the tool. It is kind of what I've heard over the years. I'm not really sure, but um, but anyway, I didn't know what abstinence was. I remembered all the diets that my mother was on. I remember feeling like I had to be perfect in order for you to accept me. So I set up an abstinence based on that. <laughs> that that works well. Um, and I kept on breaking it. And I. And I was resentful. I, you know, I, I came in, I don't know, nine months after I came to Al-Anon in August. Um, so I was here for my first Halloween, and I would see people eating candy. And I remember I called my sponsor at some Halloween party, and I was like, this stupid woman at the Halloween party, she can just eat as much candy as she wants, and she's not like us. And my sponsor said, well, first of all, you don't know what she does after you don't know if she can or can't. Um, and she said, why are you looking at other people and what they can eat? Like, what are you, how are you feeling about what you're eating? And um, it pissed me off, but it, but it was a good lesson. Um, and, and so I kept on breaking my abstinence. When I moved back to Los Angeles in 1990, um, I got, a, a, for a good period of time, a, a good clip, I had some strong abstinence that also was kind of sort of set up in a very perfect way. And I'm not being specific because I don't remember what it was. Um, I wound up, and again, if you've heard my story from this podium, you've heard all these stories already, but um, I wound up moving and I met a woman in, uh, in a meeting and um, I was captivated with her. There was something, and my food cleaned up because I switched my addiction, but I was captivated. And she was looking for a roommate. So what a better thing for a lesbian than to move in with a straight woman who's practicing bulimic. Um, and that's why I still go to Al-Anon. But um, I moved in with her, and she was using 
her addiction. She was in her addiction. She was like neck deep in her addiction. And I really thought I could fix her addiction. And and then, you know, I had some strong abstinence for about six months and I just felt like I had arrived. And I started eating with her. Um, and, and I'm not a bulimic. I'm, I'm, I've got restricting and I've got compulsive overeating. And I mean, I used insulin for a while to try and manage my weight, which is called diabulimia. But I'm, it's different than you know, wanting to get rid of my food. That's not something that ever was a part of my story. And I'm grateful for that because I see how painful it is. Um, but I, uh, God, I just took you over the river and through the woods and I forgot where I left off. But um, my food. Oh, so um, <clears throat> I started eating quantities that I had. I don't know if I never ate before, but I, I got to see the capacity of what people who get rid of their food can consume. And I was able to just, I just kept on eating because that's when we would connect is when we were eating. She had a boyfriend at some point. She got a boyfriend. And we, and then I wasn't connected to her when she was with her boyfriend, but so we could eat together. And that was intimacy, right? Um, and at some point, I started to get sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I was going to meetings that whole time. I don't remember if I was talking about it. I know that I was saying that I wasn't abstinent. I know there used to be this Thursday night recovery from relapse meeting at the West Side Baptist Church, um, perfect place for a nice Jewish girl. And I, um, and I, I know one time I went there and I said, I don't know if I'm allowed to be here because I don't think I have a desire to stop eating yet because I was so neck deep in this um, with this roommate and this food and powerless over all of that. And my life was definitely unmanageable and. Um, and this woman leaned over next to me. She said, but you're here, so maybe you do. Um, and there was something about that that shifted something in me. And, and I thought, oh, maybe I do. Maybe beating myself up for not being willing isn't working. Maybe trusting that I'm here and this is as willing as I can be right now. So anyway, one day I, um, I don't know if I heard this in a meeting or I came up with it on my own, but a after several weeks or months, or I don't even remember how long, of waking up in the morning and saying, okay, today's going to be day one. My food's, here's what I'm going to eat. I'm not going to eat more than this. This is exactly, um, and then winding up eating by 10 o'clock because there was no God in that. There was no higher power in that. I wasn't committing it to a sponsor. I wasn't, um, and by the way, that was the most, I think the most painful time for me in program was having had abstinence, having lost it, and then um, wanting it again but not having it yet. It was so painful. And one day I woke up and I said, today's day one, tomorrow's day two, unless I leave. And what happened that day was my food cleaned up because I, I wasn't managing and controlling my food. Um, I don't remember if that day I called my sponsor. I don't even remember if I had a sponsor at that time. Um, I've had many throughout the years, some really kick-ass sponsors. Um, and I've had lots of time without sponsors. But anyway, that day I said, today's day one, tomorrow's day two, unless I leave. That day was December 5th of 1991. My food cleaned up. My food, you know, um, the things that I don't eat today are gluten and dairy. I'm not a no-sugar person, but, I'm, but I don't eat sugar every day. I have cake on my birthday, and that may not work for everybody. It's something that doesn't seem to be a problem for me. I'm open to that changing if if that needs to change, but um, that's just what my experience is. And I'm honest about it in meetings and I talk about it with sponsors and all that stuff, yada, yada. So, um, and I also, as a diabetic, 
if I eat something, I um, cover for it with insulin because I have used my insulin to try and manage my weight. It's been a lot of years since I did that, back when I was a teenager and, and a little bit in my early 20s. But So if I eat it, I metabolize it, and I don't eat sugar, and I don't eat gluten. Um, and my life is sane with those things. As long as I do that, I seem to be sane. Um, or at least I think I'm sane. <laughs> Whatever you think isn't my business. But... Um, and I got abstinent, you know, again, and, and I felt comfortable with food, and I stopped fighting, and I, um, and I also jumped into service. I, um, I started, I, I was tech for the birthday party play back when we had, like, a birthday party play every Friday night of the birthday party weekend. Um, I don't know what they're doing these days on Friday nights of the, that convention, but... Um, and I just got busy. And I remember even the roommate that I was living with that I didn't live with for very much longer because I couldn't, I couldn't tolerate that when I was abstinent. I, I, you know, it just was, it was just not interesting to me. Um, she even said, where are you? You're never home. And I wasn't because I was always at a meeting or I was doing, you know, rehearsals for this show, this OA show, or I just got busy. Um, I also was working the steps again, and um, here's what not to do as a sponsor. I hadn't gotten, I hadn't yet done my sixth and seventh step, um, and I took on a sponsee, and I didn't, you know, and I was resentful because this was my time, and I didn't yet realize that we, we sponsor, you know, I think you all, you said it so beautifully, both of you in your connection, um, that that I, like I mean I, I certainly sometimes when my the phone rings and it's time to talk with one of my three sponsees like Ugh, I would rather finish watching this episode of whatever or whatever but I pick up the phone and I never don't feel better. Um, I also know that I'm not their solution these days. I'm just a tool for them. Right? We have many tools and I'm one of them. And um, and all I have to do is share my experience, strength, and hope. My experience of doing sponsorship before I did six and seven was that I didn't realize that I didn't think I was supposed to fix it. One of my character defects is I, I like order, and if there's not order, I want to fix it. And if you're not in order, and I don't know that that's my character defect, I wanted to fix it. And um, it didn't go very well with that sponsee. Because a lot of it was I started to get more and more resentful because I couldn't fix her, and and she couldn't change in the ways that I told her she needed to. And I, I just forgot all about God and all that. So... Um, on time. Um, uh, anyway, so that's my experience. Is um, it's good to work through at least some of the steps before you um, start to sponsor. Um, <clears throat> let's see. So that's what was like. What happened? Um, so what it's like now? So I mentioned about my food: no gluten, no dairy. Um, I go to a lot of meetings. I'm I'm really grateful for Zoom meetings as much as I'm disliking you know, what we've gone through in the last year and a half. Um, I've been to meetings, I, I think, in every, almost every state in this country and some other ones, and quite a few in Canada, actually, um, which is fun because everyone goes, eh, you know, after they talk. Um, and not everyone, but the people that were raised there. Um, Ten minutes. Okay. So and I wanted to have time for questions. Anyway, I am um, continually working the steps. I am now... Um, I had a sponsor who just went into assisted living. She's almost in her 90s, and it was good sponsorship. We worked through the steps through the workbook, and um, 
and now she's not available as a sponsor in, in OA. So I've got a co- I found somebody in Allen on that. She and I are working through the steps together. Um, I don't currently have a sponsor in OA, but I'm looking, um, and I know that that's you know something that's super important for me. Um, I'm working the steps all of the time, in part because I have sponsees, um, and you know someone called me this morning, and we were talking about the importance of. Well, you're going to hear. You, you've heard me talk about six, six and seven already. That's kind of my favorite one because once I've done my amends and I, you know, I'm continually doing eleven and twelve um, and and ten too. But in as a part of ten and doing the four through nine, which is really encapsulated in the tenth step, um, I'm I'm so much better able to know when my character defects are at play. And I heard in a meeting this morning and to take a pee pee break, which is pause and pray <laughs> and I love that a pee pee break that's something I can remember now being in my mid 50s because it's happening more frequently <laughs> particularly overnight um, uh, and so it's just easier I want to tell one quick story and then I'll open it up for questions um, a lot of you know I lost my parents in, uh, a number of years ago and it was um, <clears throat> they, they both died it was not good circumstances if you don't know the story I'm happy to tell you after but um my father was a pianist, and he had a house that was hardwood floors on the first and second floor. And he would sit at his grand piano, his Yamaha grand piano, and he would play Chopin and Beethoven, and it would fill the house with music. And of the the good things about my growing up, that's one of the things that I remember. And after I got my inheritance, I decided I wanted to buy a keyboard. I had enough money to buy a keyboard. I don't play piano, but I felt like my home would be happier um, if I had a keyboard, and I went to Guitar Center to buy a keyboard, and I was the 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 sales guy was a little bit rude and busy, and I was so agitated that day, and I um I went out to the parking lot and sat in my car, and I was able to take a pee pee break, right? I was able to notice how agitated I felt, and I sat there and got quiet, and I realized my father was a pianist. No wonder why buying a keyboard has some extra intensity for me and while the guy was busy and I wish he hadn't been so busy I wasn't very nice to him and and, and I got to see it so quickly and that's the gift of the program um yeah so I'm I'm grateful to be here I um I've been here since I was in my 20s and as you heard I'm in my mid-50s and um and I just keep on coming back. Just keep on doing that, and 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 I'm and I'm be excited to see you along the journey. So thank you. So questions? Yeah. Hi. Thanks so much. Um, you mentioned that you decided shame isn't so much a feeling as it is a character defense or defect. Can you expand on that, please? Yeah. So like I said, there were two feelings that I had. Oh yeah. The question is. I mentioned that, that I don't, in my experience, shame isn't so much a feeling as it is a character defense or a character defect. Um, <clears throat> so I had two feelings, hunger and shame. Um, what I've realized, because I, I would always say to myself, well, I'm feeling shame. I think shame for me is like a wasteland that I go to, and I'm powerless over it when I'm there. And it's, it, it, you know, it's where I grew up, and it probably was a really good defense. I think it probably had a lot of skill in, in that being a defense for me. But it just didn't serve me so much to, to call it a feeling because I've come to realize that feelings are sadness, um, anger, uh, 
you know, um, fear. Like the, like those, for me, I think all of those together are like when you mix all the colors and you get like a dark brown. That's what shame is for me. So, yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Can you talk a little bit more about how the obsession was lifted from you? Like, how did it happen, and if so, how did it happen? Um, I think it was doing the step one that day. Of uh, well, no, I mean it comes back all the time. You know, I I I lost my parents quite tragically, and I was hungry a lot through that experience. And I know I had bigger meals, but I just kept on working the program, and um. And at that point, I had a very strong connection with a higher power who I choose to call God only because it's shorthand. I don't really know what it is. Sometimes she's goddess, sometimes he's God. Um, and when I just turned it over there, and I, um, it somehow just keeps on getting lifted. It's daily, though. Like, if I don't, I mean, I go to meetings almost every day these days, most days. And, and if I don't go, um, or I retired in May, and before that, work was crazy because of COVID, and I wasn't getting to many meetings. I went to my one home meeting a week, and I was—I I noticed that my meetings, were, my meals were bigger. It's just I just kept on coming back, and I kept on turning it over and mentioning to a sponsor. And so I don't know if that answers that, but I just kept on working it. So, yeah. Corey, um, like, have you—you you mentioned that you got really busy in program. Did you experience like a swing in the other direction where you just wanted to kind of retreat a little bit and not be as in it? Okay, so the question is, I, I mentioned that I was really busy and did I find that the pendulum swung the other way um, and I wasn't as busy? Um, I didn't... I didn't necessarily attribute that to the pendulum swinging, but more work was busy. And, you know, over the last couple of years, what I did consistently was one meeting a week, which wasn't enough for me, but it's, my life was busy in other ways. Um, so I found that, but, but in all that time that I wasn't as busy, I was still craving to be busy because I, I love that feeling of going to a lot of meetings and just, you know, when it's lunchtime, just like, looking in the fridge and figuring out what I'm, you know, what, what do I have and what am I going to make and having it and having it be over. So I don't think it swung back for me um, in that way. I just think I, I just got busy and, yeah. Thank you so much, Corey. Um, when shame comes up for you, uh, how do you work with it? So the question is, when shame comes up with me, how do I work with it? Um, that's a great question. I don't work with it. Um, sometimes I don't notice that I'm in shame, and someone will point it out to me, a friend, my wife, my therapist. Um, uh, I, I mean, I guess how do I, I guess I turn it over. I mean, I treat it like a character defect now, um, and when I notice that I'm in it, and usually it's accompanied by a lot of self-obsession. How could I have done that? I should have done it this way. Um, I, I just take it to God. I just do six with it. And, um, and so, I mean, actually, that's seven. But I, I identify it in six, and then I just keep on praying until it gets lifted. So I suppose that's working with it. But I don't, you know, just the shame itself, I don't un try and unpack it anymore. There, there's something for me about unpacking feelings, but the shame, that never helped me get anywhere. So I just needed it to be lifted, and then I could get to the feelings underneath. So... Thanks, Corey. It was great to hear you. Um, 
So how do you sponsor what what literature to use and how frequently do you speak with sponsees and all that sort of thing? Okay, so the question is how do I sponsor, what literature do I use, um, frequency and all that. I have three sponsees who I talk to once a week. Um, actually, one, our schedule doesn't mesh, so um, we talk when she needs, but it's not always once a week. I have them check in with me every day. One of them leaves me a voicemail. Um, when it was only her, that was enough because she filled the three minutes or whatever. Um, when I got two more, I thought I can't do nine minutes of voicemail, so they both email me, and um, I gave them some light guidance. You know, if you want, you can commit your food. Um, let me know how you're doing. Um, let me know if there's any emotional furballs from yesterday. Um, I have them do the steps um, in different ways. We're doing the workbook now with with the two kind of newer ones. Um, the first, the first one that I had, I did it through the AA 12 and 12, and I had her do a paragraph a day, um, what she related to, what she didn't relate to, anything that triggered her, um, and then when she finished this step, she would read it to me, because that's how my sponsor at that time had me do it. Now I like the workbook, the OE workbook, because it's pretty thorough. Um, so I have them do that when they're done writing the step. They call me, and we set up a time um, during... COVID, we did Zoom, because I felt like it was important to do face-to-face, -face. Um, although now I would meet in person, but um, I just had them, and if I don't hear about the step for a while, and I don't push them, I don't say by Friday you have to have the step finished, but um, I will, if I don't hear anything about it, say, think, okay, um, I'll just wrap this one up. Uh, um, I will say, hey, how's your sixth step coming? Or uh, where are we on the steps? Because I don't always remember who's on what. I know where I am, but... Um, yeah, so I just I just mentioned it to them, but do, do check in every day so I'm able to hear how things are. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.